be seated. I encourage you to join me now in taking your Bible, your personal Bible, or a copy of the P Bible, and turning with me to our passage for this morning, which we find in Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So we come back this morning to our yearly series that we undertake in the month of January, a series on asking the question, what does God say about such and such and such and such? Now we've been away a couple weeks from this study due to the ice storm a couple weeks ago and then um, being out of town last weekend for a wedding. But we come back this morning to look at this series, to be in this series, so we can look at the topic of grace. What does God say about grace? If you remember a couple weeks ago, we introduced this series, reintroduced it, by saying that a series is meant to be a time for us to look at a topic, sometimes one that is a hot-button issue, and hopefully it's of interest to us. But we want to look at these issues and see what does God say about this. So we've looked at abortion. What does God say about abortion? What does he say about homosexuality? about the use of alcohol, of, of tithing, of politics, and things such as that. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at the issue of what does God say about worship. And at first glance, that doesn't seem to be a controversial subject. But if you've been in a church for any amount of time, you realize it can be a very controversial subject. And I believe the same is true for Grace. Now, if we've been to church for any amount of time, we, are rec- we recognize the word grace. We are familiar with the concept of grace. We sing it. We just sang it. Probably the most favorite hymn in all the church is Amazing Grace. We sing about grace. We pray it. We read about it. We teach it in Sunday school and Bible studies. We hear sermons preached on it. It's a very familiar word and a very familiar concept to us in the church. Yet... When we look at it, we find how ungracious we can be. How ungracious we can be to each other in the church. That's why there's a saying that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. We can be very ungracious to each other. We can be very ungracious to other Christians, to other people. We can be very ungracious to ourselves. And so we find that no matter how long we have been coming to church, how long we have been Christians for, we may find that we, in our minds, can understand the concept of grace, but our hearts can refuse to fully grab onto it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always see God as our gracious Father, do we? There are times we find Him to be a stern and cruel overseer as he's waiting for us to sin so he can punish us and delight in punishing us. Therefore, I believe grace can be controversial because as familiar as it, can, as it may be, it can be that much more unfamiliar to us. We can struggle with understanding it. We can even struggle with believing it can be true. It's as if Satan is sitting at our shoulder and constantly whispering in our ears, can God really be that gracious? Can grace really be true? So the best remedy to that is to go to God himself and ask, God, what is it you say about grace? 
What do you say about your grace? And the wonderful thing in asking that question is he answers that for us. God is gracious to answer to us this question about grace. It's throughout his word. And we come together this morning to look at Paul's great exposition on grace here in Ephesians 2. So if you would, join me in prayer to prepare ourselves to come before God's word. Lord, we come to you this morning, we pray for grace as we talk about this subject of grace. And Lord, forgive us for where we have been so ungracious about you and to each other and even to ourselves. And even though we sing Amazing Grace and we love to sing it, and even though we love the idea of grace, Father, we, there may be places where we struggle with that, we are deficient in our knowledge and understanding of it. So we pray for your grace to give us fresh ears, fresh minds, and fresh hearts this morning to maybe under, to, under, to understand anew your grace. Bless my words and bless your people and us. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, if you would join me now in the standing for the reading of God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen, you may be seated. Many years ago, during seminary, one of my professors, who I believe to be a very wise pastor, pulled me aside. And he gave me this bit of counsel. He said, James, in the chest of every Christian beats the heart of a Pharisee. In the chest of every Christian beats the heart of a Pharisee. And I'll be honest, that wasn't the counsel I was looking for at that time. That's the counsel that can sting. Because if you're in the church long enough, you realize that you do not want to be compared to a Pharisee. That is not a compliment. But the more I thought about what he said, the more I found it to be true. I found it to be true for myself, and I found it to be true for many of the Christians I've known over the years. That in the chest of every Christian beats the heart of a Pharisee. So if you're like me, when you think of the Pharisee, chances are you don't think good thoughts about them. Right? They are 
They're not the good guys in the Gospels. They're the bad guys, as we saw this morning in our Sunday school lesson. They are constantly setting themselves against Jesus. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to trip him up in his teaching. We find ultimately they're the ones who are calling the loudest for Jesus to be crucified. They're the ones who are working the hardest to see that Jesus is crucified. They're the ones who go and put him before the shame of a trial. They take him before Pontius Pilate. They want to see Jesus crucified. And when we read the crucifixion story, we find it's the Pharisees who are standing there who are cheering the loudest and jeering the most. They're the ones who are enjoying the death of Jesus Christ the most out of anybody else there in Jerusalem that day. And so... It can sting when we hear that counsel that in your chest beats the heart of a Pharisee. And I want us to think a little bit more about what this means to see why this is true, maybe even true for ourselves. So we start by looking at the Pharisees. Who were they? Well, it just takes a little bit of reading the Gospels to see that they were the law experts. They were the ones who kept the law to the nth degree And they expected everyone else around them to do the same. They taught the law. They lived out the law. They required the law for everyone. And in their eyes, keeping the law equaled righteousness. If they kept the law, then this is what made them good and right and good standing before God. And so they follow the law so closely and so minutely that they end up adding on to the law. For them, it got to the point, it wasn't just what God commanded in his word, but there were implications of that command, and those implications became commands. So they took the law, and they added law onto it, and added law onto it, and kept on adding law onto it. They were the law keepers of all law keepers. They loved the law first, and they loved it the most. And this really shaped their personalities. They did not have the most winning of personalities. And to put it pretty frankly, they were jerks. They're not the kind of people we would want sitting next to us in church. We don't want to hang out with them on a Friday night. We don't want to go fishing with them. They were not good people. However, when we think more about the Pharisees, I think the best way for us to understand them is to know that the root of their problem was not the law. The root of their problem was grace. And particularly their lack of the knowledge of grace and their experience of grace. The Pharisees were a graceless people. They were severely deficient in the knowledge of grace. They were severely deficient in their experience of grace. See, the Pharisees' main problem wasn't that they were law keepers. God tells us it is good to obey. It is good to keep his law. But we are to keep it from the perspective of grace, not from the perspective of legalism. And they were the legalists of legalists because they had no concept of grace. When they saw God's law, they never saw a shred of grace in it. They couldn't understand that God would be gracious in giving the law. When they looked at the summary law, they saw no grace of God in it. They were a graceless people. And this is why they hated Jesus. It wasn't because of the law. Jesus tells us he's not going to change the law. He's going to keep it. He's not going to change a jot or a tittle of it. So it couldn't be the law they hate Jesus for. They hated Jesus because Jesus Christ is the one who is full of truth and grace. 
So when John described Jesus in his opening prologue as one who is full of truth and grace, he hit the nail on the head of why the Pharisees hated Jesus. Because Jesus was grace. He was the grace of God in the flesh, and the Pharisees hated him for it. They were graceless. He was full of grace, and they hated him to death for it. Now, we have to be careful to avoid legalism. But legalism is the lack of grace in following the law, and that's the Pharisees' problem. They were graceless. So in the council, that in the chest of every Christian beats the heart of a Pharisee isn't so much about legalism, it's about grace. Are really the lack thereof in our minds and in our hearts. And so as children of the God of grace, the Father who shows grace in sending His Son, the Son who shows His grace by giving His life for us, the Holy Spirit who ministers His grace to us, as children of the gracious God, we do not want the heart of a Pharisee beating in our chest because we don't want to be graceless. Because we're called to be a people of grace. So, how do we be a people of grace? Well, we go to God. And we say, God, what do you want us to know about grace? And I think the best starting point for his answer to us is really with the sub-question of what is grace? Again, we... We're familiar with it in the church. We just sang it. We, we pray for it. We say grace before our meals, right? But what is grace? We've heard different definitions of it, right? Grace is, is getting what we don't deserve, right? That's, that's grace. It's we receive what we don't deserve. Or we, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. The free bestowal of God's kindness on one who has no claim to it. His undeserved and uncoerced favor. And all those are good definitions, but those are not good starting points to understanding grace. To understand grace and what it is, we have to go back to John's gospel as he defines grace. And listen to what he says in verse 14. And the word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's interesting, in in the way John opens his gospel, he wants us to understand that grace isn't a thing. Grace isn't a possession. Grace isn't just a subject. Grace is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so when we think about how Matthew opens up his gospel and talks about the Christmas story and the angel comes to Joseph and said, you shall call him Jesus, or you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God incarnate. John kind of takes that same theme and he says, here's the one who is grace. He is God incarnate. He's the grace of God incarnate. That's what John means when he says that Jesus Christ is one who's full of grace and truth. And we've talked about this before. It's not like the idea of an empty glass and and God fills Jesus up with grace. This is a matter of identity. He He is saying Jesus Christ is grace. 
And he's saying Jesus Christ is truth. And that leads to the great irony later on when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? And the great irony is truth is standing right there in front of him. Jesus Christ is the truth of God incarnate. And Jesus Christ is the grace of God incarnate. So grace is not a thing. It's not a subject. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ, who is the incarnation of the grace of God. Now, I found that Sinclair Ferguson is, is very helpful in understanding this. And listen to how he says it. He says, there is no such thing as grace, partly because I think many Christians do think there is a thing that is grace. So we say, I have received grace. And there is this kind of sense that it is something between God and ourselves that he gives to us that is almost totally separate from him. So the best answer to the question is Jesus Christ is God's grace. And when the New Testament speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not thinking primarily about something that's given to us, but rather someone who is given to us. The grace is in Christ. The grace of Christ is in Christ. And that's why the gospel invitation is not to come and receive grace, but rather is to come and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is not a thing you need. Jesus as a Savior and Lord is what you need because he is grace. So what is is grace? Jesus Christ is grace. And that's why we're called to come to him, to trust in him, to live for him and to enjoy him because he is grace. And I think for many of us, this may begin to redefine how we think of grace because we can think of grace as that possession, that thing that we want to grab onto and we ask for more of, like we're going to a vending machine and we're hitting in A1 or, or B6 to get more grace. When the Bible talks about grace, it's talking about a person. So grace then isn't just about knowledge, it's about experience. So when, when Peter says at the end of his second letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's not only growing in the knowledge, but growing through that personal relationship with the one who is grace. And that's what we find Paul exploring in his great exposition of grace in Ephesians 2. And there's some wonderful divine irony here, isn't it? Because when we first introduced to Paul, he's Saul. And what is Saul doing? He's going after the followers of grace. He's going after the disciples of Jesus Christ. And he's seeking to put them in jail and maybe even eventually kill them. He wanted to kill grace. And then grace himself revealed himself to Saul on the road to Damascus. And the person of Jesus Christ who is grace so changed Paul that we come and see we see the fulfillment, or we, see, we see the fullness of it in Ephesians 2. Where Paul is saying, here is the one who is grace. And here is what it means to know the one who is grace. And we're going to start with this where Paul starts. And that's with the bad news. In order for us to want the cure, we have to know the diagnosis. And Paul begins with the diagnosis and he tells us it's not a good diagnosis. Look again at verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, children, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So as we look at ourselves through the lens of God's grace, we see that we were spiritually dead. Not dying, not unhealthy, not needing a better diet. We were dead, deader than dead, 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 dead. We were spiritually dead. And in that spiritual deadness, we were morally captive to sin and to Satan. So not only are we to picture a, a coffin, we're to picture chains wrapped around that coffin and wrapped around us. Not only were we dead, but we were now chained to sin and to Satan. And because of that, we now stand condemned before God. And there's not a shred of good news in that, is there? We don't read these first three verses and go, man, that gives me warm fuzzies. I'm so happy to hear that I was dead and I was enslaved to Satan. And I stand condemned before God. But the formula that Paul is sharing here with us, the formula that was given to him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same formula we need to understand, and that is to know grace, to know Jesus Christ, we have to first know the bad news about ourselves. We are called to understand that as Christians, we were each dead in our sins. And if you are not a Christian, you are currently dead in your sins. Death is a part of our spiritual reality. And so in being spiritually dead, that means there is nothing good in us. And we don't like to hear that. We like for people to describe us good when they're good people. And maybe we do good things, but we remember what Isaiah says, that even our best works are like filthy rags before God. There is nothing good in us. Sin has affected every part of our being. And the result of this condition is eternal death. The result of this condition is hell. And that's bad news. We often talk about this, but for good reason. We go back to the story of creation because that's our foundation for understanding so much. Genesis 1 and 2 and then in chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that when God made everything, remember at the end of each day he pronounced it to be good. Then in the sixth day he, over, he looked over everything he pronounced it to be very good. And it was alive. He, he brought life upon this earth, this this this. this, this, this the sphere that was void, without form, that was full of chaos, he brought forth life. The seas, the lands, and the, the animals, and the stars, and the sun, brought, brought it all forth. And in Genesis 3, it tells us sin entered into it. And when sin entered in, it broke what was good. And it caused each of us then to be dead in our sins and trespasses. So our spiritual deadness separates us from God. And that's not good. And in this this separation, it means also our understanding is now darkened. Spiritual realities do not compute with us. Before grace, before faith, our entire worldview is one in which the material represents the only reality there is to us. To age some of us, 
Madonna got this right when she's saying that she's just a material girl living in a material world. Not to liken us to Madonna, because that's not a compliment either. You're a Pharisee and you're like Madonna. There's good news for you this morning. But she's right. That's our spiritual reality. Before Christ, we're just living for the material. We're just, we've been, we've been blinded by our spiritual deadness. We're blinded to the divine and to the grace of the divine. That, that, uh, it's only those things that our five senses can discern, see, hear, touch, smell, or taste. Those are what's real to us. And in that spiritual deadness to us, there's no possibility of the godly supernatural, a divine intervention of holy goodness, of the incarnation. So the spiritually dead are those then who will only encounter life in terms of what they can see. And all they can see is through darkened understandings. And in their spiritual deadness, they're alienated from life and God. I think sometimes at this point we hear Christians say, but that's not fair. And I love how uh, one parent I heard tell his children when they said, that's not fair. He would say, you don't want fair. You can't handle fair. Before we think this isn't fair, maybe there's, there's people out there who, who either are, are walking around blindly, but they don't want to walk around blindly. We've yet to encounter somebody like that. I've yet to encounter somebody who says, I wish I knew who God was. I wish I knew what he's like, but he just won't show me. Because Paul explains here, in this sinfulness, in this, this spiritual deadness, our human ignorance is culpable. And, and, and it's the result of the hardness of our hearts. Listen, people who are in their sins like their sins. They don't like Jesus. They don't like the idea of dying to the sensual. They don't like dying to the material. So they intentionally live with darkened minds and hardened hearts. They, their spiritual deadness is caused by sins as well as characterized by them. They have darkened minds and hearts and they delight to live in the darkness of their sin. Paul said that's how it's possible for someone to be dead in trespasses and sins as well as to walk and to live in them as well. So those who are spiritually dead, they like being spiritually dead. And they like living as spiritually dead. And add on to that, Paul says, before grace, we were morally captive to the course of this world. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The language here for following is, is a strong language. It's, it's used in Romans 12.1 and one translation's puts it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Those who are morally captive to the world are squeezed into the world's mold. They're forced into certain ways of thinking, believing, and acting. They're forced to believe that what is bad is good. What is good is bad. Several, several years ago, 50, 60 years ago, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, They think as the world thinks. They take their opinions ready-made from their favorite newspaper, whether it represents the left or the right. Their very appearance is controlled by the world and its changing fashions. They all conform. It must be done. They dare not disobey. They are afraid of the consequences. 
It's our culture, the conventional wisdom of our world, which is seeking to squeeze us into its mold. And think about all the sin that our culture says is okay. And before grace, we were being squeezed into that mold. We saw the sinfulness of the world and we proclaimed it good. And behind all this is Satan. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Behind the apparent conventional wisdom of this world's age is the devil himself. He's over spiritual reality, he's over spiritual forces, the cosmic powers that oppose the ways of God in this world. It's like Paul tells us in Romans 6, 12, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we're wrestling against Satan. Because pitted against the ways of God are spiritual forces headed by Satan. And the way he exercises his authority is through the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. As we've talked about before, God and Satan are not on the same level. Satan is not divine. He's not a deity. He's a fallen angel. He was created. And so which means he's not omnipresent. He's not able to be everywhere at once. If Satan were here now, he wouldn't be at your house. He can't be everywhere at once. However, he is behind the conventional wisdom of this world that stands against the biblical wisdom of God. He's behind the spirit of this age, whether it's a spirit that tears down Christian religion or whether it's a spirit that simply chips away and squeezes us into its mold. And before grace, this was our master. We held the hand of Satan and we followed him. And Paul says the culmination, or what we finally see in all this bad news is that we are also captive to our own sinful desires. We say it this way. We are not free not to sin. Before grace, before Christ, before Christ, we were not free not to sin. And that's the bad news. And the culmination of this bad news is that we now stand condemned before God. We are now children of wrath. This is what it means to be graceless. That was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were graceless in this way. And that's the counsel we have to hold on to. That in the heart, of the chest of every believer is the heart of a Pharisee. The heart you and I have to struggle against as children of grace. We find that we struggle with wanting to live in our sins in a spiritually dead way. Again, we've said this before. We like our sins. That's why we commit them. We love our sins. That's why we do them. We find that we don't always want to say no to our sins. A lot of times it's easier to say yes than to say no. And we can discern how often we are tempted to take the hand of Satan and follow after Jesus. And that's a hard reality to hear as Christians, isn't it? We don't want to hear that we have chosen to take the hand of Satan instead of Jesus, but we do at times, don't we? Because in the chest of every Christian beats a heart that can struggle with grace. We know about it. We sing it. We pray it. We read it. We teach it. And we struggle with it. 
Because I think at the end of the day, we just don't see how wonderful grace is compared to everything else. We sing Amazing Grace, but it's kind of, eh, grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet this sound. Really, so-so grace when it's convenient for me. Satan has run a very good PR campaign on sin and sinfulness. Because even when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we still struggle with thinking that sin isn't really all that bad. We find Paul addressing that in Romans 6. But grace is always better than sin. Jesus is always better than Satan. And living in grace is always better than living in sin. And that's the bad news. That this is the heart that can beat in us, even as children of grace. And we don't have time this morning to look the goodness of grace, the good news of grace, we will come back to that next week. We don't want to just stay on the bad news. We want to come to the good news. But I want to encourage you to take time this week to do this one thing. I want you to think through whether you have a pharisaical heart. Not legalistically, but grace. And ask yourself the question, do the diagnostics. Where in your life do you struggle with grace? What sin do you choose to hang on to? What anger have you held on to that has turned it into bitterness and is now like a cancer eating away your soul? What part of your heart beats like a Pharisee? Write it down if you need to. And then keep on coming back to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Here's the wonderful promise of grace himself. I will save you. I will take that heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will take your struggles of grace and I will show you how much more wonderful grace really is. If we would just be honest with them. Jesus knows your heart's. He knows it better than you do. He knows the pharisaical parts of your heart. If we would just be honest about it and bring that to him and see how he applies grace to it and help us to see how much more wonderful grace is than that sin and than that doubt and that discontentment and that ingratitude. For us to be reminded that we can be saved by grace through faith. Join me now as we pray.